Uh, Today's scripture reading comes from Joshua chapter 10, verses 7 through 15. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon. And struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda, and it happened. As they fled before Israel and were on the descent on Beth Haran, the Lord cast down large hailstones from the heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and did not hasten to go down for a whole day. And there has been no day like that before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Here in Joshua chapter 10, we're seeing how the fear of Joshua and the people of Israel is growing in the land of Canaan. Everybody that had inhabited Canaan were seeing what was going on, and they were being filled with fear. And Israel had conquered Jericho, as we know, and then they had the horrible debacle at the Battle of Ai, uh, where they were routed because they didn't seek God's will, and they themselves hindered God from working because of sin in the camp. But they took care of that sin, removed that obstacle to God's work, and got back down on their knees where they should have been in the first place, reconsecrated themselves and sought God, and then God told them, okay, now go take the city of Ai. And he said, here's how you do it. He laid out the whole strategy. It's fascinating. Sometimes you want to go back in chapter 8 of Joshua and read God's strategy and how that worked. And by the way, God said, you can keep all the spoils and enjoy all the plunder. It's all for you. So the news of the might of Joshua and the people spread throughout the land of Canaan. And then then their their fear increased as the Gibeonites, who was kind of the next city in line from Ai, known for their mighty army and fighting men, just came to Joshua and surrendered. "Don't Don't come against us. And they were actually willing to be subjugated and became their woodcutters and water bearers for the house of God. This, yes, we'll do anything, just don't kill us. And you'll find that story in chapter 9. Now we've been looking at a number of stories over these summer months to see how we too can experience God's power in our lives. And today I want us to see how God's excuse, God's power is experienced in audacious prayer. 
Now, that brings us to chapter 10 of Joshua, and the scenario is laid out for us starting in verse 1. Now, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city. Like one of the royal cities, it was larger than I, and all its men were good fighters. So the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, was getting more and more alarmed as he saw what was transpiring there in their area. And so he saw what, uh, what was taking place, and now the Gibeonites had actually surrendered to Israel without a fight. And from a strategic perspective, this was horrible for the whole land of Canaan because Israel had effectively separated Canaan right through the middle, the north and the south, just absolutely separated the two areas. So out of concern and fear, they decided to attack. And Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, became Basically, the ringleader. He came the for, became the force. He became the one that was going to lead. And in verse 3, we read, So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Horam, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. Come up and help me attack Gibeon, he said. Not Israel, okay? To attack Gibeon because... It has made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Let's take the Gibeonites out. So they all went to attack Gibeon to retake control of that whole central part of Canaan and trying to bottle up Israel and keep them all kind of over in, uh, on the side. And then we read in verse 5 that these five kings joined forces. They moved up, it says, with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal. Do not abandon your servants. Okay, they're already subjugated. Okay, they're always ser already serving Israel. Do not abandon your servants. Come up to help us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. I think Joshua kind of felt himself between a hard place and a rock here. What to do? The Gibeonites were still pagan people in Canaan. Remember, God said you're supposed to take out all the, all, the, uh, Gib uh, all, all the pagan people. But they had made this peace treaty, and interestingly enough, they had done that without consulting the Lord. But they had made the peace treaty in the name of the Lord, so Joshua's kind of figuring what in the world to do. So Joshua found himself in a bit of a pickle. But this time he did go to the Lord, and he asked him what to do. What should we do here? We know he did that because verse 8 says, The Lord said to Joshua, so Joshua was talking here with the Lord. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. I have given them into your hand. Not talking about the Gibeonites, about these other armies. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. Do not be afraid of them. That was a command, it wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't an encouragement. It was a command. Joshua actually had five good reasons to fear. He had those five kings in those five cities uh, that had joined forces at like a confederation. But God commanded jo Joshua to not fear 
his enemies. Why? I have given them into your hand. Hadn't been done yet. But as far as God was concerned, already done. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. You see, the command to not fear was joined with a promise. Joshua could obey God's command to not fear because he had God's promise of victory. Folks, fear is our enemy. Fear is our enemy. When we succumb to fear that the enemy tries to put in our hearts, and he's always trying to do that, we are defeated. Fear takes away our ability to fight God's battle. Even in the face of strong enemies, Joshua was commanded to not fear. Went against all logic. For Joshua, fear was unbelief. Being unwilling to believe what God promised. It's the same today. God's, God knows it's one of our natural weaknesses. So over and over again, he tells us in Scripture to not be afraid. It's all through Scripture, not to be afraid. Psalm 37 is one of the greatest chapters commanding us to not fret, but to trust the Lord. Listen, do not fret. A command, do not fret because of those who are evil. Or be anxious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. A command. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, a command, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, a command. Trust in Him and He will do, he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. And verse 34 of that same chapter, hope in the Lord and keep His way, another command. He will exalt you to inherit the land when the wicked are destroyed. You will see it. Over the New Testament, 1 Peter 5-7 tells us, cast all your anxiety on Him. It's a command. Cast all your anxiety on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. Philippians 4, verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. A command. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to the Lord. And if we do that, and that's the kicker, we need to do that. And if we do that, the promise in verse 7 is, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We need to trust Him. Be anxious about nothing we come back to that old hymn, hymn that we mentioned last time. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. So trusting the Lord without fear, we're told in the text that Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. And verse 9 tells us, after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Those kings weren't expecting this. They thought they were just going to be fighting against the Gibeonites. Now this is where it becomes really interesting. You see, when we are marching with the Lord, 
trusting the Lord without fear. When we're doing what the Lord asks us to do, when our lives are in the right place with the Lord so that He can work, when we are walking in the Spirit in truth, God starts doing some cool things for us. You notice, too, that Joshua didn't sit back to passively watch God work without his participation. In fact, he went to great effort to participate in the work and the will of God. The text simply says, after an all-night march from Gilgal. What did that entail? Doesn't sound like that big of a deal. Well, actually, it took a lot of hard work and initiative on on Joshua's part to gather all all the men. And and you see, the the march from Gilgal to Gibeon involved a climb of 3,300 feet over a distance of 20 miles. In the middle of the night, all night long, 8 to 10 hours of hard marching and climbing all night long. And the lesson here for us is that, yes, God does His work, but He draws us into working with Him. And he never says it's going to be easy. God often waits to see our initiative, our willingness to be a partner with him before he does what only he can do. We saw that when Joshua and the Israelites were supposed to cross the Jordan. It wasn't until the priests with the ark actually put their feet in that raging water that God said, okay, now I'll stop the water for you. Anything less would have shown fear and lack of trust. Again, this is not the idea that God helps those who help themselves. We've talked about that. The idea is God wants to draw His people into partnership with Him in seeing His work done to build their faith, to build our faith, to trust Him. And as Joshua and the people of Israel stepped out in faith and trusted God, God came through. Listen to verse 10. The Lord through them. Who are them? The five kings and all their armies. The Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. The next few verses tells us how they were defeated. Again, it's a God thing. The Amorites were shocked when the Israelites showed up at dawn. They weren't expecting that, and apparently they, they had no clue as to how to handle that all of a sudden, and, and uh, they, they became confused. They turned and they ran. And they were in full retreat, and Joshua and his men were chasing them. Look at verse 11 to see what God did next. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them. And more of them died from the hail than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. And you say, is that even possible? I mean, a few days ago, we had a little bit of hail that came down. You know, I saw it bouncing. There have been many recorded instances of huge hailstones, up to seven inches big. June 22, 2003, chunks of ice the size of softballs rained down in Aurora, Nebraska. I was just told that last year, this year, they had another huge hailstorm. One, they wrote, a jagged behemoth with a seven-inch diameter entered the record books as the largest U.S. hailstone ever. Can you imagine hailstones like that, like that coming down? There was a hailstorm in 1986 that struck uh, Gopal Ganj in Bangladesh. 
with two pound hailstones. It says it left tragedy in its wake when it took 92 lives and caused extensive property damage. And it says these deadly projectiles were estimated to have fallen at over 99 miles an hour. So you can imagine what took place there <laughs> before Joshua and his people. And that's the kind of that's kind of what God did there to the Amorites. I have no idea the size. But something else happened that day that allowed Joshua and his armies to gain victory by the Lord's hand. This is something that has driven scientists and some commentators crazy. Because they want to have a logical explanation for everything. Verse 12 tells us that Joshua spoke to the Lord. That's very important. I, I, I wish they had recorded that conversation. I would have loved to have heard that conversation. What, what went on there? Because Joshua's next statement was so audacious, it's mind-boggling. But it's important to know that Joshua spoke to God before making this statement and speaking out. Now, either... In that conversation, God told Joshua what to do. Or Joshua su suggested something amazing to God, and God decided to go ahead and answer his prayer. We're not told. But verse 12 says, Then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up all the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said, to, in, he said in the sight of Israel. Okay, so, so all of Israel, all of his people were standing there listening Talk about putting your faith to the test, right? It's one thing to say it yourself, but when everybody else is listening. And this is what he said, probably looking up the sky. O sun, stand still at Gibeon. And O moon, in the valley of Ayalon. Apparently that's how that's pronounced. So what happened? So the sun stood still, verse 13 says. Duh. <laughs> and the moon stopped until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. In fact, verse 14 tells us that the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. Can you imagine? The sun stopping in the middle of the sky and delaying going down. The five kings are running for their lives and hoping for the darkness so they can get out and hide but the rest of the chapter tells us how Joshua and his army were able to find all those kings and kill them because it stayed light. Now, say, hold on a minute. Everybody knows that the sun isn't traveling around the earth. Why would God's word, which is supposed to be truth, right? Why would it say the sun stopped? So there must, there's no way that this could have actually happened, right? Well, sure could have. From a human perspective, I mean, even today, we talk about the sun rising and the sun setting. The sun goes up and down, right? That's how we speak of it, because that's what we perceive. And in the midst of us saying that, we know full well that the sun is actually not doing the rising and setting. The earth rotates, which gives the impression of the sun rising or setting. Well, there's been a lot of speculations and attempted explanations as to what could have taken place here. Some suggest a local miracle in which God allowed light to remain in Gibeon. 
Kind of like when God was leading the Hebrews out of Egypt and the Hebrews had, had light and the Egyptians had darkness, they couldn't see. But that's difficult to reconcile since the text seems to indicate an actual change of the earth's rotation since it says the sun did not set. It wasn't just extra light that was provided. God could have done that with His glory. He gave light to the, the uh, Israelites in, in, the, in the desert, the cloud by day and a fire by night. Others argue that the language of the passage is poetic and therefore not to be taken literally. Well, this view causes other problems then because mainly how is a reader to know then what event is figurative and what isn't? We can't just apply figurative interpretations to difficult biblical passages just because it doesn't really make sense to us. We can't figure out how that could have happened. Compared to God's mind, our minds are puny <laughs> and can't understand much. Another view tries to explain the event as an eclipse that gave the appearance of a long day during which the sun didn't set, or perhaps some combination of an eclipse and refracted light in the, in the atmosphere could have made the day appear longer than normal. And God just timed the event to miraculously coincide with Joshua's prayer and the at that moment of need. Well, the main weakness of this view, of course, is that an eclipse typically lasts a few minutes at the most, certainly not 12 hours or longer. In a book entitled Worlds in Collision, a man by the name of Emmanuel Velikovsky suggested that the long day was caused by the near pass of a comet that was powerful enough to tilt the axis of the earth. The tilting of the axis, quote, and I quote, could produce the visual effect of a retrogressing or arresting, arrested sun, a greater tilting, a multiple day or night. But probably the best explanation is simply to take Joshua 10 at face value. God did it. God performed an astounding, amazing Stunning, remarkable, stupendous miracle causing the sun to delay its setting. God stopped the motion of the earth. Oh, there's objections to that too. Impossible. Based on physics of motion. And they say, and I quote, If this stops suddenly, the effects would be catastrophic. We and everything else not attached to the planet would be thrown sideways, oceans would maintain momentum, and a giant tsunami would spread water inland within a minute. Okay, from what we understand, makes sense. But my question is, what's that to God? Seriously. The God who created the world, the God who established the natural laws for our world is perfectly capable of compensating for any collateral complications that might have taken place. Do you remember our study in Colossians? Where it says in chapter 1, speaking about who Jesus is, it says here, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And what? In him, what happens? 
all things hold together. In him, all things hold together. Do you think Jesus, the creator of the world, was incapable of holding all things together back there in Joshua 10? When the earth stopped rotating? Now, we might not have a scientific explanation of how God performed this miracle, but folks, he did. He did. That's our God. That's how big our God is, who, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he does not change. His power does not change. His, his mirac- miraculous ways don't change. And while we may not fully understand how this long day occurred, a miracle doesn't have to be scientifically proven, just accepted. Joshua prayed, and God supernaturally provided the light necessary for Joshua's army to win that battle. You know, in Joshua's mind, I wonder if the greater miracle to him may have been that God (laughs) listened to him and answered this audacious prayer. I mean, who, who would have thunk? We're going to come back to that thought in a minute here. But in a completely unique miracle, God answered Joshua's bold prayer, and the Lord fought for Israel in a unique way during Israel's conquest of Canaan, all the way through. And verse 20 tells us that Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely, the five kings and the cities. The next verse says that his whole army returned safely from battle. Not one was lost. Five kings, five armies, not one was lost. And Joshua uses the capture of these kings and the amazing victory God achieved as a teaching moment for his people in verse 25. And Joshua tells the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Be strong and courageous. This is what the Lord will do to all the enemies you are going to fight. See, didn't God say he'd do this? He did it. This event was to be a defining moment for Israel regarding the whole conquest of that land. God accomplished complete victory at Jericho, marching around the walls of the city, and by faith, the walls just fell down. God gave victory at Ai, where the people learned that God will not give them victory if they rebel against him. We went over the whole concept of Achan's sin, costing the people dearly as some of the army did die when I counterattacked. But that wasn't because of the power of I. That was because of the lack of power from God because God was not with them. God wasn't with the people because, their sin and, because of their sin, and so they lost. And when the sin was dealt with, then the people were victorious at the, in that same city. Then God gave them this decisive victory against these five Amorite kings. He throws down hail. He extends the day. Victory is given to Israel, and the whole army of Israel returns to camp safely. Then the rest of chapter 10, you can read that sometime, and chapter 11, amazing stuff. It shows the impressive stick to of Joshua in accomplishing God's will. When God asks us to do something, He wants us to stick to it all the way through. Chapter 10 records how the armies of Israel successfully conquered the whole southern part of Canaan. Look at verse 42, or listen to it. All these kings and their lands Joshua conquered in one campaign because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for 
Israel. It wasn't because Joshua was such a phenomenal leader. It wasn't because the Israelites were such great warriors. It was because God fought for Israel. Joshua couldn't do it on his own. We can't do it on our own. If you'd read the rest of the chapter, you'd find that he went from town to town, defeating the kings and their armies one at a time. He kept searching. After those five kings, he continued through the other, other towns one at a time until they were all defeated. Why? Number one, God told them to. And secondly, because they represented sin in the land. And Joshua had to deal with every one of them to eradicate them so that God's people would not be affected by them. You know, in the same way, we can't allow any sin to have any place in our lives either. We are to be holy we are to be sanctified. We are to be purified. The church is the bride of Christ and should be without blemish. All the ground belongs to Jesus and we must take it for Him. The enemy likes to get grounds in our lives because of sin. We need to eradicate that. Just as Joshua did, we must eradicate the sin one at a time until we are truly walking in the Spirit, in the fullness of the Spirit. And chapter 11 records the conquest of all of northern Canaan. They took all of northern Canaan as well. You know, I, I believe God saw in Joshua's heart that he was truly devoted and consecrated to God. And that he wanted to accomplish everything that God had put before him. And he was not going to stop until it was all done. There's a fascinating verse that I've kind of skipped over that I want us to look at before we wrap things up here this morning. And that's Joshua chapter 10, verse 14, because there's something important to see regarding the miracle of the sun standing still. Look at what's said about this amazing event. Starting at the end of verse 13, we're told the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. And then verse 14 says, There has been no day like it before or since. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. What's that referring to? There has been no day like it before or since. And it's easy to jump to the conclusion, and many commentators have, (laughs) that the fact that God stopped the sun and moon has never been done before or since. But then we know if you read Isaiah chapter 38, God actually moved the shadow of the sun backwards, which technically means that he not only stopped the rotation of the earth, but then he started spinning the earth backwards. The point being made in this verse is not that there has never been a day like this when God stopped the sun and moon in the sky. That was nothing to God. That was nothing to God. He controls nature. That's not the point. Look at it again. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. That's the point. For the Lord fought for Israel. Point's not the miracle itself. The point is that Joshua requested this amazing miracle and God listened. It's okay. God listened to Joshua and did an unbelievable act stopping the the sun and the moon or the rotation of the earth. Now, at first glance, the demand to stop the sun and moon would seem kind of selfish, right, on Joshua's part? Come on, I I want to defeat all these people. Do this incredible thing so I can defeat. 
as if it was his, for his own purpose to gain the victory. But one, one commentator wrote this, It may be thought, perhaps, that the whole motive which induced Joshua to put up his prayer for the prolongation of the day was only his zeal and eagerness for gaining an entire conquest over his enemies. But we cannot imagine that Joshua should, without a special direction from heaven, have addressed unto God the prayer concerning the sun and moon, which he is recorded to have done in the sight of Israel. For of what an extravagance would he have appeared guilty if an effort had not been given to what he asked for? Or how could he be so wild as to think of an accomplishment of so strange an expectation as this would have been, had it been only a thought of his own heart or wish for it? So there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of man, namely in such a manner that he actually altered the course of nature that a man might have more time to pursue and destroy his enemies. But the only reason that God did that is because of the last phrase of that verse, for the Lord fought for Israel. It fell into his plan. It fell into his will. And that's what praying in Jesus' name is all about. We are praying according to God's will, and, and Scripture says God will answer. It wasn't just to give Joshua and the people of Israel victory, but there is a powerful, powerful spiritual lesson to be learned by all. And a good reminder lesson for us today in this. Remember how God gave victory to Israel by hailstorms? Killed most of the people that way. And then he stopped the sun and the moon. Now, interestingly, all the nations in the land of Canaan had at that time, their individual deities that they worshipped, to whose protection they committed themselves and their country, and to whose power they credited their success to war. The three principal deities whom the inhabitants of Canaan adored were the sun, the moon, and the heavens or the air. Isn't that interesting? So to convince them that the gods in whom they trusted were subject to God Almighty and to punish them at the same time for the false worship they paid them, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them and more of them died of the hail than were killed by the swords and then he stopped the sun and the moon for almost a full day. And one author wrote this, but unquestionably the same Lord who spoke unto Joshua before the battle, who told him not to fear the armies of the Canaanites, who assured him that they should not be able to stand before them, or that they, yes, uh, directed him to ask for this wonderful miracle, and in granting what he asked for, gave a full testimony both to the Israelites and their enemies that the gods of the heaven their gods of the heaven were but idols, and that it is the Lord who made and rules the heavens. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. We're going to be looking at that next week. So what are some quick lessons here for us this morning? Now, from a couple of stories from Joshua, we've learned the need to have faith to ask God. Have faith to ask God. Rather than making decisions based on what looks right, sounds right, seems right, we need to go to God and ask. Well, you might think, duh, that's obvious, heard that before. Yeah, but 
How often do we do that? I ask myself that question. How often? You see, God wants us to come to Him with everything, not just the big things, the drastic things, the immediate urgent things. He's interested in all of us and everything that's going around about us. And He just might have a better way of doing it than we do and doing something amazing. But as we've learned from chapter 10 here, we need to not only have the faith to ask God, but we need to have the faith to pray bold and audacious prayers. We need to have the faith to be willing to pray for things that we would consider impossible. Just think about it a minute. Here you've got Joshua standing out there before the armies of, the, of, of Israel, and he looks up at the sky and shouts out, Hey, you, sun and moon, stand still. I mean, seriously? I wonder if the people thought, Ah, Joshua's been standing out in that sun way too long. Do you think the people in his army thought this was ridiculous or impossible? I mean, who would ask God to stop the sun in the sky, right? Maybe a people who had seen a raging river stop in its tracks so they could cross Jordan. Maybe people who had seen God make fortress walls fall down just by walking around them. Have you ever put yourself or try to imagine yourself back in a scenario like that. We might have tried to argue the science with Joshua. Joshua, God can't stop the sun because it'll have all kinds of catastrophic problems. That's what they're arguing today. People read this text and argue how this couldn't happen because of the science. And you know, we, we, we tend to do this sometimes with God. We tell God what he cannot do. (laughs) What's worse, often we don't pray as we can because we think there are things that are impossible for God. No, Pastor, that's not true. I agree, we would never say that. We would never say that there are things impossible for God. We'll say that God can do anything, but... Do we really believe it? There's times in my life, I don't know, can he? Will he? Probably not. Deep down in our heart, do our actions portray that belief? Do our prayers portray that belief? Jesus said it was true. When Jesus is about to face the cross, he went off by himself and prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Was Jesus right? He also said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Do we believe that? There's a moment when a man brought his son to Jesus who had an unclean spirit, who, who caused him to have these seizures and, and foaming at the mouth and threw him in the fire and threw him in, in the water to try to destroy him. And the father comes to Jesus distraught and says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on him and help us. Do you remember what Jesus, Jesus said? If you can? Seriously? You're doubting me? You're doubting that I can do this? All things are possible for one who believes, Jesus told them. See, the hindrance 
was not with Jesus, but with the Father. That was a huge, massive statement that Jesus made there. What do we think that God cannot do? What's too great for God? Do we believe that nothing is too great for God? I trust so. And if we believe that nothing is too great for God, then we need to ask ourselves, well then, what am I not praying about? That might bring that reality back around a little bit. What am I not praying about and why? It might not even be that we don't think God can do something, but maybe it's that we don't think that He will. Think about the message of Joshua 10 and 11. What did the first generation say that they could not do? What did they say was impossible? They told Moses, they told Aaron, they told Joshua, they told Caleb that it was impossible for them to conquer Canaan. Why? Because there are giants in the land and there are fortified cities all the way up to the sky. What did we just see happen? God did what the people thought impossible. The only time they lost in the whole conquest of the land of Canaan was at this little town of Ai because the people broke faith and did not do what God had told them. And they sinned. Where's our faith this morning? I'm not doubting your faith. That's not why I'm preaching this today. But we all always need to be asking ourselves, where, where is my faith? Do I truly trust the Lord? Am I praying that way? In a moment, we're going to be standing and singing, they say this mountain can't be moved. They say these chains will never break. But they don't know you like we do. There is power in your name. Move the immovable, break the unbreakable. God, we believe. God, we believe for it. From the impossible, we'll see a miracle. God, we believe. God, we believe for it. Do we believe for it? May that be where our faith is going to boldly and audaciously pray because nothing is too great for God. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It's kind of what we've been talking about all through these Old Testament. Consecrate yourselves before the Lord. Righteous. The prayer of a righteous person. And the question we need to ask ourselves from time to time, do we believe? Are we righteous with the Lord? Do we have that purity, the rightness in our hearts with the Lord? If we do, God is going to come in and do amazing things. Father, this morning, I pray that you just encourage us to really look into our lives, look into our hearts. And I pray that your Holy Spirit, if, if there are areas in our lives that we need to have uh, pricked, that we need to have pointed out, we need to be convicted of because it may be a hindrance of what you're doing in, in, our, in our personal lives. Father, I pray that you would do that, that you would bring us into, back into that perfect, right relationship with you where all the sin is eradicated, the sin is gone, and there is no hindrance, and, and you are free then to work in us. Nothing is impossible. God, we believe. In Jesus' name, amen.